brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika and today I'm speaking to one of the UK's greatest living writers. And I don't say that lightly. The author of 13 novels, he of course won the Booker Prize in 2011 for A Sense of an Ending. And his latest novel, Elizabeth Finch, will be published later this month. But it's already a Sunday Times bestseller. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to him today. He is, of course, Julian Barnes. Julian, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Who came first, Elizabeth Finch or Neil? Oh, I think Elizabeth Finch came first. But she came around about the same time as Julian the Apostate, who is a real character who comes into the, a non-fiction part of the novel halfway through. Um, my books tend to begin quite a long way back. And sometimes by the time I write them, I've forgotten where they come from. But uh, I can remember thinking of the sort of character I wanted to be the main character of this novel and to be observed by a student. She, she teaches in a sort of Birkbeck-type college at London University, evening classes in culture and civilization. And he, Neil, and the rest of the class have sort of come along because they've reached their sort of 30s and they're a bit beached. They've slightly lost their way. They're looking for as she puts it, a place of seriousness. And she leads him and the rest of the class in a sort of alternative versions of history and civilization. And at one point, she talks to him about uh, a figure called Julian the Apostate, um, who was the last pagan emperor of Rome, killed in the Persian desert in 363 um, AD. And with him perished the chance that paganism which many see as a much more uh, optimistic, charitable and enjoyable religion than Christianity, was finally doomed and was not going to go on through the centuries. And she asked Neil and the class, try to imagine what would have happened if Christianity had not run Europe for the last 17 centuries. Uh, it's a very interesting question. And it's also an attack on monotheisms, because monotheisms, on the whole, lead to persecution, killing of, of heretics and schismatics, and to, to great violence and social bullying, in my humble opinion. And of course, as you write, the pantheic approach meant that it was about enjoying life, right? There were gods that were not just guiding you towards an afterlife where you would have a, where the pleasure would be, but actually focusing on on enjoying life as you were living it. Yes, exactly. The old Roman and Greek pagans believed that life, earthly life, was more or less all there was, and that it was the only place where you would find light and pleasure and lack of guilt, and that afterwards you sort of roamed around in some sort of vague, sort of soupy place, undefined. Um, but that was really the end of you. Whereas, of course, the Christian approach was that this world was merely a sort of prelude to the afterlife, and it was the afterlife which mattered. And this place was a place of darkness and sorrow and suffering and guilt. And you got your reward if you followed 
what the priest told you after death. And so it was a complete reversal of what um, the pagan world thought. And to my mind, much less convincing. How were you taught history, Julian? Were you taught to absorb facts and regurgitate them or were you inspired? Uh, Oh, I certainly wasn't inspired. I was taught history rather as I was taught geography, that these were the facts, that this was how an oxbow lake was made in the plains of Canada. And this was how uh, the British Empire conquered the world. And they were both meant to be unarguable facts. I think the geography I was taught was probably nearer than the truth and the history. It's a relief that at long last, the British are to a certain extent, though very cautiously, addressing their history. Other countries do it much more vigorously. Germany, for example, confronts its past, has confronted its past much more directly than we have, even though, of course, that past is much more horrific. But even so, there's a lot of bad, violent stuff in our history, and we we should deal with it. But we're quite good, you know, the, the British and especially the English are quite good at avoiding the matters that are a bit embarrassing, you know, quite good at not talking about things. And this sort of notion that, for example, the statuary that is in our towns, the public monuments that are there in our towns, are a correct representation of what history was. This is um, this is complete, you know, horseshit. They're just statues that were put up at a certain point by people who wanted to pay for them in order to remember a brother or a town councillor or whatever. And as it's obvious, there are mainly men who are being commemorated. And a lot of them commemorated, as with the statues' Confederate uh, generals, uh, which were being taken down in America, they were often put up quite a bit after the time when they were actually first famous, as is the case with Colston in Bristol. His statue's been there for fewer years than there were years between him dying and the statue being put up. And so it's in some ways it's sometimes an attempt to sort of subsequently fix history for what people decide it was. But I wasn't taught history like that, no. In (laughs) In my years, I was taught that it was mainly battles, I suppose. It was battles and it was adventure. It was going out there into the world. It was colonizing places where, I don't know, there didn't seem to be many people. You know, now we recognize that there were quite a lot of people there and quite a lot of them we killed. You know, this is going back to, I started being taught history, I suppose, in about 1955 or something like that, 56. So only 10 years or a dozen years after the Second World War. So unsurprisingly, there was a heroic dimension to quite a lot of the history I was taught. And the British Empire still more or less existed. Now we just have a few rocks in the ocean from time to time. What are the elements, Julian, that have shaped you into being the kind of person that you are that does not bristle when the orthodox narrative of British history is questioned, when Colston's statues are brought down, when Satnam Sanghera writes a book like Empire Land, which asks us to reevaluate. Why do you not bristle as so many, if you don't mind me stereotyping potentially, so many of your generation do bristle? <laughs> um, I think it's partly because I'm a writer and I'm looking at how uh, how life actually is rather than how 
life is supposed to be or you've been told that life was. I think it's also actually connected to the fact that I have a sort of second country, which is France. My parents were French teachers and the first foreign country I went to was France. I was about 12 or 13 and it was the only country I knew until I was 17 or 18. It was my, it was my primary exotic. And I read French at school and university. And one of the things that it did was it made me look at my own country through French eyes at times. And of course, it's very funny to look at the English through French eyes or the British through French eyes and the French through British eyes because they, they often reflect one another's vices and virtues to an astonishing extent. I mean, one of the things that uh, people, as you would say of my generation, would say about the French is that they're hypocrites. That's one of the most famous insults thrown at the British by the French and by many others across the world. We think of ourselves, we, the old white British, used to think of ourselves as being gentlemen, very correct, everything done by the book, fair in judgment, fair in administration. We're seen elsewhere as, you know, a sort of incredible bloodthirsty mob who every so often would descend on one part of Europe or another. And so I suppose it was after I had been taught history at school, you start querying the general narrative. That's also, you know, part of your job as a writer, as I said. And so, no, I don't bristle. I rejoiced when Colston's statue was thrown down. I thought it was a, it's a really, really good thing. This must have been especially insulting to so many of the generations of descendants of slaves who live in Bristol and completely understandable. And I also think it's very clever that the authorities, when it was pulled out of the water, decided to put it on display as it was all paint daubed in the local museum. I think that's a brilliant move. Because, you know, the sort of cliche about museums and so on is that we're trying to tell the history of the object. Very often they haven't been. But that's a case which I think you could take children to, you know, who are only just being born now. And you could explain a lot of things by looking at that statue. You could explain about local politics, local society and imperial Britain. What do you make of the concept of patriotism? Uh, the last refuge is for scoundrel, as Dr. Johnson famously said. <laughs> I think, uh, you see, Dr. Johnson, he's thought of as this crusty old Tory. And this is why both sides of, of the question are more subtle and more complicated. There's a Dr. Johnson who's thought of as almost like John Bull, this absolute English Tory who didn't stand any nonsense, who didn't agree with theory and that sort of stuff. And in fact, he was, um, he was very critical of the country in places. I thought of him particularly at the time of the Falklands War because he wrote an essay when we got the Falklands from the French in some peace treaty, I think, in the middle, late 18th century. And he said, this is absolutely ridiculous. What do we want this pile of rocks in the South Atlantic for? It's extremely stupid to own the Falkland Islands. <laughs> and so I love discovering things you don't expect to discover in writers. What was your original question? <laughs> because I was strayed off. Oh, patriotism. I think part of patriotism is objecting to the the false and general narrative that we're given. Part of patriotism is pointing out when you think your country's got something wrong or shouldn't have done something, you know. 
it's not patriotic to support the Iraq war just because you're British and there are British soldiers going there. It's a stupid and immoral and foolish war. And that's what should be said and was said by many people. So I think I feel at my most patriotic when it's sort of okay to do so, by which I mean the World Cup, you know, the Olympics and stuff like that. I do feel patriotic on those occasions. And it's funny the way sport gets you and different sports in different ways. And I find one of the occasions when I can be guaranteed to burst into tears is at the Olympics when British women rowers win a medal, especially a gold medal. There's something about that which just just goes straight between my ribs and I burst into tears. Uh, men, you know, men can win gold medals at the rowing. I don't care. You know, I'm happy, but, I, but I, I'm not profoundly moved. But there's something about seeing women's double scholars or the women's eight powering ahead of Canadians and Romanians and so on that makes me feel very patriotic and very happy. And I think that's, I think it's a safe kind of patriotism. Um, then, of course, it would be no surprise to anybody then that you would have more than a negative attitude towards nationalism. Yes, uh, nationalism. I suppose it goes patriotism, nationalism, chauvinism is the sort of the downward slope of feelings about your country. I think that nationalism, it starts off well intended. It starts off as creating a country, making a country coherent, having a group of people who agree to live together in a certain way. And of course, there is always a myth, an origin myth of every country that, you know, we had Boadicea and she threw out the Romans, that sort of stuff. And one of my favourite quotations is from a French 19th century historian called Ernest Renan, who's a philosopher and historian. And he wrote once that getting its history wrong is part of being a nation, which is a very profound thing. He didn't say getting its history wrong is part of creating a nation. We kind of know that anyway. We know that the origin myths are usually false and that this great uprising against the tyrant probably didn't really take place or the tyrants were leaving anyway. But he said getting its history wrong is part of being a nation. In other words, in order to continue being a coherent nation, you have to agree on certain false things which are part of your touchstones as a nation. And I think that's true. I think that all countries do that. And that's, in a way, nationalism. And then chauvinism kicks in afterwards, and that's sort of, we're the best. Nationalism can be fairly harmless at the beginning, and then at a certain point it grows toxic. And then, of course, if you throw religion into it, it makes it all much worse. See Northern Ireland for the last few hundred years. Does writing automatically make you optimistic about the world? Or does oh. it lead you personally to be more pessimistic about the world? That's a good question. I think of myself as a, as a sort of cheerful pessimist. Four days a week and then three days a week, I'm a melancholy optimist. You know, it sort of slightly switches around like that. I don't think that writing makes me more optimistic or pessimistic. I sort of don't look back on my books as a sort of collective work. And, and so I find it hard to actually compare different aspects of them from one to another. But I would guess that on the whole, my novels, especially when they're concerned with love, don't have a happy ending. Or if it's not a, exactly an unhappy ending, it's a sort of you leave the characters with 
a certain amount of life ahead of them and you let the reader imagine what they're going to be as they walk down this future track that you've outlined in the novel. I think my books probably represent, well, certainly do represent my, my take on life, but I think my books are quite funny as well. So it's, it's, not, all, it's not all gloom. There's a cheerfulness to the pessimism. Yes, good. What were the catalysts, Julian, to creating Elizabeth Finch or Elizabeth Finch as a reaction to something that you're feeling? It's hard to remember. That may sound flippant, but it's not. Because part of writing is once you've made a decision and once you decide to go that way rather than this way, you forget what the alternatives were. So all the time you're going along writing a novel for two or three years, you're sort of covering your tracks behind because the tracks behind are sort of useless. You only need what's ahead. That said, I suppose I was interested in the sort of woman that Elizabeth Finch represents. She's a sort of independent scholar. She's not a famous person at all, but she's a teacher and she's a proper teacher. As I said, she takes her students to a place of seriousness and she tries to make them think in a different way to try and recognise the prejudices that they've come burdened with and to try and shift them. I sort of imagined someone in their 40s, perhaps 50s, late 40s, early 50s, stylish, sort of European, possibly Jewish, wasn't sure, very precise. To a certain extent, at the beginning, I had the example of my friend Anita Bruckner in mind, who was a, a good friend, though a very controlled friend. She was the controller, who I knew for many years. But it's not about her. It's just that it's about the sort of type of woman who she represented. It is the Finch representatives in the book. Uh, it's funny, I mean, I occasionally see actors interviewed on television, and I've seen the same answer to the question from both Laurence Olivier and Dirk Bogard. They say, how do you build up your characters? And the answer, which they both say, as if no one has ever said it before, is, I start with the shoes. Um, <laughs> and in a funny way, building up Elizabeth Finch, I started with Anita Bruckner's shoes and a certain sort of moral component to her. And then I put Elizabeth Finch in and she walked away in Anita Bruckner's shoes and going in the direction that she wanted to go in. You used an interesting word in front of friend there, which was controlled. What does that mean in the context of your friendship with Anita Bruckner? Oh, I can tell you very straightforwardly. I was her junior. And it's interesting we became friends because we met the year she won the Booker Prize and I didn't. And I could have been resentful, but I, I tell you why I wasn't. Because about a week before the Booker Prize, and I didn't know her, I think I'd met her socially once, she dropped me a card and it said, I think you will win the Booker Prize and you should. And I thought, what an astonishing thing to write, you know, a week before the great ceremony in the Guildhall. I thought this is a most unusual woman. I can't think of I can't think of any man who would write that, and I can think of few women who would. Anyway, she did. And so when she won it, I sort of didn't really resent it. And we met, and then we would have lunch every so often. At first, it was about twice a year. Sometimes it was three times. She would always decide where we we're having lunch. This is what I mean by controlling. She would always pay the bill. She would always be there before I arrived. 
she would usually be smoking a cigarette and she would, at the beginning, she would have a glass of wine or a glass of champagne or something like that. And she liked going to stylish places. And then it was perfectly clear after approximately 70 minutes that that was it. We had an espresso and she called for the bill and we kissed one another goodbye. And in that 70 minutes, we had spent what in other, with other friends, other sort of more loosely textured friends, was like three hours of company. So, you know, I adored her and, and she was obviously very fond of me. But I had no other, I think she came to dinner in my house once and lunch once, but on the whole, it was always out in a restaurant. And she was very witty. You see, this is the other side of Elizabeth Finch. You'd, you'd arrive for lunch and she would say, so what have you got for me? <laughs> and you were immediately, you were there, you had a function, which was to tell her something entertaining or funny or witty or gossipy. She loved gossip. And we sort of went from there. And we talk about, you know, art, because she was a professor of art, and we talk about writing and we talk about people we knew. But she laid down the rules. She laid down all the rules. I didn't resent it at all. I thought, these are the terms and conditions for having a friendship with such a person. The only time I got it wrong, I was looking at a catalogue of the forthcoming season at the National Film Theatre, and there was a programme of the first moving pictures of Paris back in the sort of round about 1900, bit before, bit afterwards. And they were all short films. I mean, the first, the first film shown in Paris was of, it was filmed in a station, and it was just the train arriving. And the train was just coming towards people in the cinema and getting bigger and bigger. And they all ran out. There was panic. They thought this was going to come through the screen. It was so realistic. They thought the train was going to come through the screen and just run over them. So they all, they all buggered off. And there were, I don't know, something like, it's a 90-minute programme, so there were maybe sort of 10 or 12 short films of Paris street life and that sort of thing. And I thought, Anita will be fascinated by this. So I rang her up and I started describing it as I have to you. And I got about a third of the way through and she said, no, I don't think so. And I felt quite hurt, I have to tell you. <laughs> I, I didn't say, but Anita, you're interested in this. You're interested in France. You, you must love these films. It was just, you know, her social life was very ordered and going to the movies with a friend and his wife, who she'd never gone to the movies with before, was sort of just outside her thinking at that point. And I respected that, but I was bit, I was hurt by it. I thought in longer term, in retrospect, I find it funny. Have you always been waiting for an opportunity to include an Anita Bruckner? Because what you've just described to me, those meetings with her, are an exact copy of what occurs in the book between Neil and Elizabeth Finch. And it's so extraordinary. Have you been waiting for the opportunity to include these details of meeting someone so controlling? No, I mean, it's not as if I... And I must stress, it's, it's not a roman à clay. It's not a novel about Anita Bruckner. It's a novel about someone who shares some of her traits and her quirks. And, I, and there are some things about Anita that I just... I mean, I just couldn't resist putting in straight from life. But uh, I didn't, obviously, I didn't use the uh, will you come to the cinema with me thing. Um, no, that's true. But um, I suppose if you'd asked me in the, what was it, 30 years perhaps that I knew Anita, 
I would have said, no, why would I, you know, I wouldn't write about her. I, I mean, I admire her, I admire her novels. Um, and indeed, when she died, I wrote a piece about her. And maybe it was that that set me off in some way on wanting to make a sort of parallel fictional character out of her. You don't quite know what will set you off, fortunately. It would be awful if you knew what set you off to write a novel, if you knew in advance somehow, or if you knew certain things would set you off to write a novel, then it would just be like painting by numbers, and it wouldn't be interesting. Can you develop curiosity, Julian, or is it something that you you either kind of are curious or you're not? I don't know the answer to that. I think some children and adults are naturally curious, and some develop it. I think I'm one of the latter kind. I think I developed it. I, I know my parents are dead, so you can't ask them. My brother can't remember, so you can't ask him. I think I was sort of slightly shy, slightly timid, obedient boy. I mean, I was excited by things, but they weren't like being excited by ideas. And back then, we lived a fairly narrow life. I mean, I said that we, we went to France, my parents had been before, because they were French teachers, but we didn't go there till I, I was 12 or so. And nowadays, you know, children of six or eight are comparing San Francisco with Hong Kong and things like that, and saying, oh, I, I like going there. What do you think about that? And so some of the exoticism that was there in a neighbouring country has gone, apart from the fact that countries are becoming more homogeneous in any case. I think it is a case probably that appetite comes with eating. Being curious makes you more curious. And writing, you know, when you decide to write a book on a certain subject. I wrote a non-fiction book about five years ago about a French 19th century gynaecologist. Uh, I would never have guessed in advance that I would write about Dr. Potsy, who is a great man as I discovered. But, you know, it's you get an impulse to sort of possibly write about someone and then you start investigating it and then you become curious. And, you know, it's one of the side benefits of being a writer, that there are always things out there that you don't know and you still want to know about. Well, I am now curious to find out about the objects that you've brought to us here on the Penguin podcast, <laughs> uh, Julian, starting with... A stuffed parrot, of all yes, things. Yes, yes, which I'm going to hold up so that you can see. Can you see that? <laughs> yes, now, I can. I can. Wow. In 1984, when I was defeated for the Booker Prize by Anita Bruckner, the novel of mine that was up for contention was called Flaubert's Parrot. And it's called Flaubert's Parrot because Flaubert, who's a writer I revere, runs through a short story called A Simple Heart, and it's one of the most perfect short stories ever. It's about a, a serving woman who is poor and uneducated. And it's about the various emotional attachments she has through her life. She has a fiancé who dumps her. She's attached to her, the family she works for. She has a, a nephew who then goes away, I think, South America and just never comes back and so on. And eventually she attaches her emotional needs to a parrot, which she lives with. And it's called Lulu. And she's called Felicite. And um, eventually the parrot dies and she has him stuffed. And she looks at him and in her confused mind, he becomes somehow confused with the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost could speak as her parrot could speak in the old before it was dead. 
And it's a wonderful story in that it teeters on the edge of the grotesque, and yet it's deeply moving. The end of the story, she dies, and as she dies, she imagines coming down from the heavens like the Holy Ghost in order to take her up to heaven, an enormous parrot, enormous parrot coming down to enfold her with its wings. And when he wrote this, Flaubert went to the Museum of Natural History in Rouen, Normandy, and he borrowed a parrot because he wanted, as he put it to a correspondent, to get the soul of parrothood and understand it. And he said, had it sat on his desk all the time he was writing the story. And every so often he'd write to someone saying, I'm really fed up with this bloody parrot. It's staring at me. It looks really cheeky. But he needed it there because he needed the essence of parrothood in front of him. And then he wrote a, a work of genius. So as I had written Flaubert's parrot, a few years ago, a friend gave me this. And it's just the sort of parrot that he was writing about. It's very shabby. It's sort of bright green, but the green is fading a bit. And it's got a sort of cheeky look in its eye. And so it sits in my study. And, uh, well, I'm not going to write a story about a parrot. So that's one thing that won't, won't inspire me. <laughs> um, an EU lapel pin. Yes. Yes, there we are. I'm holding it up for you, but you've probably seen one before. Yes, I it's have. Many of them. All the, all the stars of the EU. I mean, I think one of the most catastrophic as well as the saddest things that this country has done in my lifetime is, first of all, join the EU, then not be a very particularly faithful member of it, i.e. we never joined the euro, we never joined the Schengen Agreement. But we are sort of semi-detached Europeans. We were Europeans when we felt like it, you know. Tony Blair and John Major each would separately say, we are at the heart of Europe, which is obviously nonsense. We viewed it entirely as a, as an economic project, not as the Europeans do as a political and moral project. And I thought that when, in the face of a deeply dishonest exit campaign, uh, we went out, it was a great loss. I mean, it's a lot lost me personally for what that matters, because I count myself a European. But there have been no benefits to it at all since it happened. We haven't got those oven-ready trade deals. Our economy hasn't suddenly expanded, as Jacob Rees-Mogg promised us. We look back at his absurd pronouncements beforehand, it's shrunk, but it's still shrinking. And the only benefit of Brexit, and this is quite interesting, the only benefit of Brexit has been to the other European countries, who might, some of them, have been tempted to leave Europe. They see what we did. We're, we're the canary in the coal mine, and we're now upside down in the cage from coal gas, and they're thinking, oh, that's not such a good idea after all. So uh, you could take the, the line that we've been incredibly high-minded and we've, we've shown the Europeans what not to do. And it's made the EU stronger, which is a great relief, because if that were to collapse... I remember talking to European friends after we'd voted to leave and saying, look, the one thing that's most important is you must, you must be strong. You must stay together. You mustn't think that this is a good thing to do. Um, and fortunately, we, we've demonstrated that it's a very bad thing to do. I don't think, given the current state of British or the English uh, political parties, I don't think we'll go back in my lifetime. But I do hold out the strong hope that when the bad effects have finally worked their way through. And when people of my generation, whom, quite a lot of whom voted for Brexit, will have died off, that the young will say, this is ridiculous. You know, 
we're not an empire anymore. We're a trading nation. That's what we are. And we're sitting a few miles across the English Channel from the biggest trading block in the world. Now, whose bright idea was it to leave that trading block? And they'll say, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's an absurdity. Let's have another vote and we'll go back. So I'm not a remoner. I'm a returner is how I would define myself. And I feel very strongly about it. How do you engage in polite conversation with people who are the complete opposite of you in that respect and are Brexiteers, to use that term? You mentioned Dr. Johnson earlier on. Dr. Johnson was, of course, someone who enjoyed a good uh, polite debate, didn't he? Yeah, (laughs) he liked telling people what he thought, yes. I'm not a very contentious person in my social life. I don't like arguments. I'm not very good at arguments. I'm good at arguments on the page, but I'm not very good at having an argument and marshalling my facts and so on. And I think that I have... I don't know, half a dozen, maybe more friends who I know or I'm pretty sure voted Brexit. And we don't talk about it. We talk about football law. Well, there's a whole lot a lot to talk about apart from Brexit. And I think we probably, we didn't talk about it at the time of the vote because I think most Brexiteers that I know probably thought they were going to lose the, the vote. After all, Nigel Farage thought he would lost the vote. And I think it's still best avoided in terms of social conversation because it makes me so angry. And then I I get angry and then I'm not fluent enough because I'm so angry. Uh, I feel very emotional about it. And that's not a sound basis for argument. Your next object is your father's dip pen with his name on it and a picture dated from Allahabad, 1942. There it is. And I don't think you can see enough detail, but it's... it's, it's, My father was in the Air Force in the war and he was posted to India. And he was first in Madras and then he was in Allahabad. And... in 1944, and I was born in 1946. So this is something my father had before I existed, before I was engendered, uh, though my brother had been born in 1942, so he was alive. And it's a sort of just an object that you'd probably buy in a bazaar or something like that, and it has a little painting of a mosque with lots of minarets next to it and a bright blood-red sun on the right-hand side. And then it says, Ricky Barnes... 1944, Allahabad. And this is something that really appeals to the novelist in me. My father, who was a schoolteacher, was christened Albert Leonard. His family always called him Leonard. When he met my mother, she said, oh, well, I can't call you Albert and I can't call you Leonard. They're rubbish names. I'm going to call you Pip. Now, Pip as in Great Expectations, Pip might be a proper name for a sort of dewy youth or maybe someone of 20. But, you know, my father had to grow old with being called Pip. And she also didn't like her name, which was Kathleen. She changed it to Kay. So they are Kay and Pip. But he had more names, you see. He was a teacher, and in the common room, he would call Albie and sometimes Albie Boy. They didn't use the Leonard. And I don't know how these decisions are made, but they obviously are at some stage. And there were some teachers who called him Wally. Now, this was not an insult. This was because in the 1940s, 50s, there was a famous Arsenal footballer. I think he was a wing half called Wally Barnes. And so my father was sometimes called Wally. And then he goes to India 
I had two of these dip pens, and they both have the name Ricky Barnes on. Now, no one ever that I've come across called him Ricky. So where did this name come from? There's a wonderful thing to sort of ponder. You'll never know the answer. <sighs> did he do some amateur dramatics and played a character called Ricky? Who knows? Was there some Ricky in popular culture which they named him after? Um, and then he came back from India. He stopped being Ricky and he went back to being Albie and Wally and Leonard and Pip. And my, my father was a very nice man. He was very gentle and very ironic and very intelligent. And he just sort of took things like that as normal or they weren't central. Anyway, he never explained to me why he was called Ricky and I shall never know. But that's, it's partly human curiosity, but I think in a funny way, it's fictional curiosity. You know, you could imagine a character who had lots of different names and then there's one that really no one could explain. And you write about the mysterious inner life of Ricky Barnes or something like that. The next object, Julian, is the CD of Sondheim's Company. Yes. Uh, I adore Sondheim's work. I think he's the greatest composer of musicals of our lifetime. And I think that his musical company is one of the best, not just musicals, but plays I've ever seen. I remember being asked to do a list of the you know, 10 best plays of the century or something. And I put this in because it's a play as well as a musical. And it's about a man called Bobby, who, as they say, can't commit. And um, he has lots of married friends. And they're all saying, come on, you've got to get married. We all are. And as they try to sell him the notion of marriage, it becomes clearer and clearer that they're, what they're going through is not what he, what he admires or would enjoy. And at one point he sings a song which is called Marry Me a Little. It's a beautifully organised song about someone who sort of likes the likes women, likes the idea of being a couple, but actually, you know, perhaps some of the terms are wrong. And so it starts off, you know, marry me a little, love me just enough, cry but not too often, play but not too rough, keep a tender distance so we'll both be free. That's a brilliant delineation of certain sorts of characters who who want to keep a tender distance in order to still be free. And then a bit later on, we'll look but not too deep. We'll go but not too far. We won't have to give up a thing. We'll stay who we are, right? <laughs> and he's, he's clearly deeply unfit for marriage or deeply unfit for a, a profound relationship. But it's, it's very lightly and wittily done and it's sort of kind of charming. And it, as you go through the song, you sort of, you get the full point of it. It ends with, oh, how gently we'll talk. Oh, how softly we'll tread. All the stings, the ugly things, we'll keep unsaid. We'll build a cocoon of love and respect. You promise whatever you like, I'll never collect. Right? And it, it's it's a complete fantasy. I mean, lots of people have, have fantasies about marriage in one way or another, but this is a fantasy of a marriage which is so sort of cool and so sort of unargumentative and so sort of gentle that it's almost like brother and sister. I do think he was a genius sometime. I mean, imagine there's all sorts of things he wrote that you just think about it. I mean, imagine no one could do it now. That's what the people in the know say. But he wrote a musical called Assassins, which is about half a dozen or so of the various men and one woman who tried to kill American presidents. And it's a musical. And they all sing. 
and then they get to know one another in the course of the musical. And at the end, you know, half a dozen of these assassins, some successful, some not, they're singing a song together about what they all do and how it's their job. It's so bold. I you know, anyway, it, I, I saw it in, uh, in Revival about five years ago. And it's still, it's still, it's wonderful when things shock you just as much as they did when you first saw them. Can you lastly tell me a little bit about a golf ball from your IBN 196C electric typewriter? Yes. There is the object you see right. before you. Uh, uh, yeah. It looks like it's just an ordinary golf ball. And in many ways it is. But I started having an IBM 196C typewriter about 40 years ago. And they were made at the time when, you know, the technology meant that big and heavy gave you the best result. And so this is probably the heaviest typewriter ever made. And I bought my stereo equipment at the same time. And that was incredibly large and incredibly heavy. Uh, And things have moved on since then. But I have written on an IBM 196C, and it's important to note that it's a Diplomat 96 12-point. That's the type size and the type variety. And because I've always used this, it's like my fingerprints. I can recognise the manuscript that I've typed, obviously because it's got a lot of corrections on by me, but also because of this particular typeface. It's, It's like my fingerprints in a very strange way. And I'm now particularly attached to it because I have, in the course of the last 40 years, had three different typewriters of this kind, and they've all got broken down at different times. And I've always been able to get them mended until last week. And last week, this one, which is over my left shoulder, broke down, and the space bar stopped working. Now, you haven't been able to get spare parts for this instrument for years, and there's only about there's no one in the country who actually ends them. So if I could make appeal to listeners, if anyone has a 196C IBM typewriter, which is in working order, I'd be truly interested. So at the moment, I just have this, this remnant. In fact, in my study here, I've got, I've got them all out. I've got three. It's like an elephant's graveyard. I've got three hulking great IBM typewriters. I had a man who used to look after them for me, and he had also serviced them when they were... They used this sort in the American Embassy in London. And there was a typing pool of, you know, 30 or 40. And he would repair them all and he'd service them all. And then at a certain point, they said, well, we're switching over to computers, so we're not going to need you anymore. And he said, uh, well, in that case, can I buy them or will you give me them? Because I, I'm often asked for spare parts for these things. They said, no, we're going to smash them all up. And they smashed them all up just in case someone would be able to identify from a document that it was typed in the American Embassy in London. <laughs> Crazy, but true. And that's politics for you. I am slightly intrigued about what perhaps could be a glaring omission from your objects, and that would be any kind of homage to your beloved Leicester City football club. (laughs) Um, Well, hang on. This is where Julian just takes off his headphones and wanders into a corner of his office where I'm sure he's about to produce something Leicester City related. Let's see what Julian does. Right, puts his headphones back on. Right, what oh, do you oh, have oh. for me, Julian? Well, I ha- well, the thing is I can't find it because my, my study is in such chaos. But um, the first home match that Leicester had after they'd won the premiership, I went up to Leicester. And I was given one, everyone on their seats had one of those 
are sort of made of cardboard. They're sort of like big fans, and you flap them back and forwards, and they make a sort of rattly noise. And it had pictures of Jamie Vardy and so on, and and champions and, and that sort of thing. It's definitely somewhere in my study, and I, I should have thought of that, but I didn't. I mean, I, I started supporting Leicester City when I was five or six or something like that, because Although I was brought up in London, I was born in Leicester and spent the first six weeks of my life there. And then I moved, my parents moved down to Acton in West London. And I had two teams I supported. The first was Leicester City because I was born in Leicester. And the second was Partick Thistle in the Scottish First Division. And I supported them because I thought they were called, I was young, I was very young at the time, I supported them because I thought they were called Patrick Thistle. And my middle name is Patrick. Despite that, recognising this error when I got to about the age of 18. <laughs> I always look at, for the Partick Thistle result to this day, and they're not doing very well. So I followed Leicester as my main team for a long time, and I would friends would take me to their matches when they came to London, usually Chelsea or Arsenal, and they'd always be beaten. And then they had this amazing time when they won the, they won the league, the, the Premiership, and then they won the FA Cup. And this is reward for long loyalty, 60 and more years of loyalty. They're not doing very well at the moment. But then I always maintain that supporting a team like Leicester is very good training for supporting the England football team because that's a life of disappointment and breast-beating melancholy, if ever there was one. So I shall support them. Well, at least you've seen your team win the Premier League. I'm a Spurs That's fan, so uh, oh, yeah. Yes. My mother was 23 the last time Tottenham won the league. She's now 84, so <laughs> that gives well, you a I sense. Res- I resent, but I resent Spurs because one of the time you did the double, as was the same with Arsenal, you oh, beat Leicester City yeah, in the cup final. Yeah, wow. before your time, probably. I don't rejoice, but if you support Leicester City, you always get a slight smug satisfaction when teams who are much more well-endowed and have bigger stadiums and can afford more expensive players are going through a time of turmoil. I watched Brighton beat Liverpool 3-0 the other day and because I, I love Liverpool, but there was a certain satisfaction to be had to see them being taken apart for once. And, um, you know, last last weekend it was Spurs against Arsenal and you must oh, have been in the land of pain. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> a can't terrible talk about place it, to be. You see? No, I'm not. I'm still. I'm. You'll get an invoice from my therapist for bringing it up. I think, uh, Julian. Uh, <laughs> such is the pain it, that team brings me at the moment. I have to say, Julian, thank you so much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation, and I, I'm so glad that you could join us. Really. Not at all. Thank you. Not at all. It's very enjoyable, and um, anything for Penguin Random House. Here's a PS. Anyone who's listening, remember, I need an IBM 196C typewriter in working order. That's a great demand, a great ask for our listeners, of which there are many, many thousands. So someone may well surprise you with that, Julian. I think they might be too young on the whole. We'll see. We'll see. Thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. This podcast, of course, has recently hit the milestone of over 5 million downloads. So thank you very much indeed for being part of that extraordinary journey. Now, finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Julian's enormous body of work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I shall see you next time. Hold up. 